Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The Peter Schiff Show. Another big day up in the U.S. stock market. Records all around the NASDAQ, not only taking out 8,000, which was a milestone that we broke earlier in the week. We closed above 8,100, 8,109.69 to be precise, up 79.65 on the day. S&P 500 also setting a record high, up just over 16 and a half points. I think the Russell 2000 might have hit a record as well. The Dow Jones is the only major market not in record territory, although we're not too far away. We were up about 60 points today. We closed at 26,124. I think it was 26,600 and something. That was the high. So we're still about 500 points shy of hitting an all-time record high in the Dow, although it seems that it's not that unlikely that soon we will be hitting a new high for the Dow as well. And of course, this is going to you know, really be greeted with a lot of enthusiasm uh, on Capitol Hill. Donald Trump, of course, is going to embrace the record high, just like he's already embraced the record high in the NASDAQ. But I think what's really responsible for this most recent move up are the Fed comments. Now, maybe Trump can take credit for those. Maybe Donald Trump was able to get Jerome Powell's mind white after all when it comes to rate hikes. Although if you look at the coverage uh, from the Jackson Hole, most people think that Powell, you know, stood strong and you know was resisting uh, the calls from Trump uh, to go easy on rate hikes, and he was, you know, standing by the Fed's commitment to raising rates. But that was not really 
what was said, not just by Powell, uh, but by other Fed officials who were there, who were giving interviews uh, from Jackson Hole. To me, it was clear, and I mentioned this on my previous podcast about the, the Fed being willing to let the inflation genie out of the bottle, that the Fed is basically backtracking on rate hikes that the markets may have anticipated for 2019 by talking about how interest rates are closer to normal now that 2% today is not the same thing as 2% in the 1990s, not wanting to invert the yield curve, waiting for the whites of inflation's eyes before they actually come out blasting by doing everything that it takes. I mean, I think that the Fed has basically said, we are going to sit back. We're not going to be preemptive on inflation fighting. We don't think inflation is going to break out. Uh, but if we're wrong, well, then we'll do whatever it takes. I mean, basically, the Fed's new attitude is that why take an ounce of prevention when you can always use a pound of cure when it comes to inflation? Because that ounce of prevention, given how frail the economy actually is and what a big bubble we have, that ounce of prevention could be lethal. So let's just forget about that. But somehow we're going to be able to slam the economy with a pound of cure. We're going to be able to get aggressive on fighting inflation if for some reason it ends up being much worse than we thought. I mean, I know that that's not going to happen. Maybe the markets are pretending that they don't know it either. But I do think that traders are slowly getting the message and they are starting to price out some of the later tightening that the markets had priced in. That's why I think the dollar sold off. And in fact, the dollar continues to weaken. Dollar index now is at 94.60. And you know it got below 94 and a half yesterday before it rallied. And what rallied the, the dollar yesterday was the consumer confidence number that came out. It was the highest consumer confidence in 18 years. And I think that's what caused the dollar to reverse those losses. Now, it uh, surrendered some of those gains today because the dollar was higher this morning. And then we got some bad economic news pending home sales unexpectedly dropped for the seventh consecutive month. And, and so we continue to get the soft data positive, meaning, you know, not hard evidence, but just people's hopes, people's, uh, you know, are optimistic. And that kind of data has been positive. But the actual numbers have not been. That's why, you know, the economic surprise index is at 14-year lows because the data keeps coming out surprisingly bad, just like today's number on pending home sales was unexpected, the decline. Now, why would you not expect this decline? I mean, we've declined for six months in a row for a reason. Every time the numbers are bad, it's always catching people by surprise. That's because they're confident. People are not expecting bad news. And when they get bad news, it doesn't cause them to rethink uh, their outlook. They just, okay, well, they go back to the same uh, frame of mind and they're just hoping that the next number is going to be good. And then when it's not good, it's another unexpected downward surprise, but the confidence is not shaken. And that's really all the markets have got going for it is all of this false confidence. But of course, this is going to come back to bite us, maybe not in the midterms, because I still think a lot of Republicans uh, won't give up hope uh, by November of this year. But I think by November of 2020, hope is going to be long gone, right? And people are going to be taking out their frustrations at the polls. You know, when they're casting their vote, I think they're going to be voting against the Republican Party, against Donald Trump, because he let them down. 
because he didn't deliver on his promise to make America great again. In fact, they're going to be looking at an economy that is in worse shape in 2020 than it was in 2016, despite the fact that Donald Trump claimed that we just had the greatest boom in, in U.S. history. Uh, and it was all the result of his policies. Well, then, if we're having the greatest bust in history, well, that's also the result of his policies, which are unfairly associated simply with free market economics, small government, uh, you know, cutting taxes, repealing regulations. So all of that is going to be vilified. But getting back to my point on why the market is rising, if some of the traders now are reading into Powell's comments, what I'm saying that the Fed is not going to be as quick on the trigger to try to preempt inflation, that they're they're willing to give the economy, you know, more running room, more slack, right? The way the Keynesians like to describe it, you know, kind of let the economic car run a little hot, right? You know, not really pump on the on the brakes as quickly as, you know, people might have thought. This is bullish, right? More cheap money is bullish for the markets because cheap money is what got the whole bull market going. And people hope that more cheap money is what will keep it going. But obviously, that is not good for the dollar. And that is why the dollar has sold off so significantly since Jackson Hole, although significant not relative to how much it's going to sell off in the future, because there it's just a drop in the bucket. But nonetheless, in one week, it is a significant decline in the value of the dollar that a lot of traders didn't expect. I think that was also behind the move up in gold, the same scenario. If the Fed is not going to be tightening as much as the markets thought, well, that's less of a reason for traders to be bearish on gold if their bearish bets were based on the Fed hiking rates. And that's why gold went up. You know, gold was down yesterday about 10 bucks. It was higher in the morning. But again, the consumer confidence numbers, which got traders more bullish. Oh, there's look, the consumer is confident. They don't realize that it's false confidence, right? That doesn't make, you know, if somebody is confident, the ice, you know, is thick and they walk out onto a pond and then the ice is thin just because they think the ice is solid doesn't mean that they, that it's going to be, you know, it's going to end well. If the ice is thin, regardless of how confident they are, they're still going to fall through. And so having false confidence is not a good thing if, you know, if you end up, you know, falling into some ice cold water. And so that's what's going to happen. But when the markets see these confidence numbers, uh, they all of a sudden, oh, I want to buy the dollar, sell gold because this confidence, they expect it to actually translate into real economic gains, kind of like the field of dreams economy. I mean, if enough people are confident in the economy, then the economy is going to be good. I mean, I think that's what Trump is hoping because he's trying to be the Pied Piper of confidence by talking about how great everything is. And he's hoping if he just you know says it enough that it'll actually become true simply because he's he's said it, right? It's like almost like a marketing. If, if I say it enough, then it's going to happen. But it doesn't work that way. In, in economics, but nonetheless, uh, the the markets short term are always influenced by these better than expected confidence numbers. Uh, but gold was up about six bucks today, so it kind of held the twelve hundred level, I think, yesterday when it sold off, and now it's back at twelve oh five, twelve oh six, I think, on on the day. But all this is being driven, I think, by the beginning of the change in perception, and this is just in early stages, because this has a lot of evolution going forward as people really start to price out uh, future rate hikes 
and then actually start to price in a pause in the hikes and then actually the cuts, which are going to come, and then QE4. Yeah, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves now. The markets aren't looking that far into the future. I don't think they can see that far yet, but they are beginning to read the writing on the wall. If you look at the bond market too, the yield curve has been widening a bit since Jackson Hole. And and the reason for that is the yield on the longer term bonds have moved up a bit and the yields on the shorter term have moved down a bit. Now, why would that happen? Well, if the Fed is not going to raise rates as much in the short run, then that would be a little bullish for short term bonds, right? Because the Fed you know, has a lot more influence on the short end of the curve than it does on the long end. But if the long end of the curve, if people buying long-term bonds believe the Fed is not as committed to fighting inflation as they thought, that the Fed is not going to keep raising rates, which may in fact push the economy into recession. In fact, I think a lot of bond traders are pricing in the next recession and that they think the Fed will keep raising interest rates until the economy goes into recession. And then they recognize that once that happens, well, the Fed is going to cut rates. Uh, and I think they're starting to price that into the bond market. That's one of the reasons that bond prices aren't moving up that high. And in fact, I think even bond traders have a sense of a self-fulfilling prophecy that if they bid up or sell off bonds too much, and if they cause long-term interest rates to rise too much, that in and of itself can push the economy into recession, which would be bullish for bonds. So if you sell bonds too heavily, you end up creating an environment that's bullish for bonds, which I believe causes fewer people to want to sell them. And so if bond traders now no longer believe the Fed is going to be as preemptive, if they're not going to raise rates as much, well, maybe they think that the the recovery is now going to go on longer than they thought because the Fed is not going to step on the brakes uh, as much as they thought. And also, if inflation is going to be higher, if the Fed is going to allow more inflation, and in fact, if they're going to allow the inflation genie to get out of the bottle and then somehow try to put her back in, all of this stuff is bearish for long-term interest rates. So you're starting to see the beginning of the steepening of the yield curve, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. This yield curve is going to get a lot steeper. Long-term interest rates are going to move a lot higher if the perception is that the Fed is not going to be as tight as the markets previously believed. And it's probably not the rate hikes for 2018. They're probably still on the table, although Maybe the, the December hike is 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 not as high a probability. I think the markets still have that one as maybe about 70%. I think September is pretty much near 100% uh, that we're going to get a rate uh, next month. But December maybe is not maybe is 50-50, so it's you know a little bit less. But the key is 2019. I mean, my bet at this point is there are no rate hikes at all in 2019. And if we don't get a rate hike in December then we definitely won't have rate hikes in, in 2019. But even if we have one in December of 2018, that will probably be the last one that we're going to have. And that would mean that the uh, we would peak out at 2.5% would be the, the short-term rate. And I think, though, long-term rates are going much higher. I don't think the yield curve is going to invert, uh, but I think we're going to have a recession anyway. And I think it's going to be an inflationary recession. So it's going to be stagflation, which is going to make it that much worse, which, of course, is even more bearish for bonds, more bullish for gold and more bearish for the dollar. And of course, you know, there are a lot of people that still think that 
inflation and recession are somehow mutually exclusive or how can that be you know if we have recession well that's going to put out any kind of inflation fire because you know recession means that consumer demand is going to be down right if consumers lose their jobs they have less money the stock market goes down you have a reverse wealth effect they think this reduction in demand is going to mean lower prices it's not i mean people forget or they maybe they don't forget they just don't know that historically the biggest inflations happening during times of economic weakness not during economic strength strong economies lower prices weak economies raise prices but the reason we're going to have such big price hikes in the next recession is because the supply of goods is going to fall much faster than the demand for those goods. And the reason that's going to happen is the dollar is going to crash. And as the dollar crashes, imports are going to collapse, right? Where Americans are not going to be able to afford to import all these products into the country. So that reduces the supply of goods that are available for purchase. So even if the demand for those goods is falling, if the supply of those goods is falling faster, then price is going to rise. So those people who can still afford to buy are going to be paying a lot more. Obviously, the people who can't afford to buy aren't going to buy anything. But if you do buy, it's going to cost you more. At the same time, as the dollar is dropping, a lot more of what we produce domestically gets exported. So our exports go up as our imports go down. Well, we're exporting stuff. That's less stuff available for American consumers to buy. So when the dollar collapses and the trade deficit shrinks, what happens is goods go out and paper money comes in, right? Not just the paper money that the Fed is printing, but all the paper money that our trading partners have been warehousing, and now they go to spend it. So they send the money here and they take the goods out. So you have all this money chasing this diminishing supply of goods and so prices skyrocket. Now, service prices won't go up as much because, you know, foreigners are not really going to be buying up most of our services because they're locally uh, delivered services. So those prices won't be going up as much. They're still going to be under a lot of pressure because, of course, the people performing those services need to buy stuff. And so they're going to have to charge more for their services. Otherwise, it's not worth working. So all prices are going to go up. And this is going to be a massive inflation. And, of course, the Fed's bravado, oh, don't worry about it. We're going to do whatever it takes once inflation breaks out. No way. They could talk all they want about it now because they don't have to actually do it. But when push comes to shove, when we're in a recession and inflation is running, they're not going to do whatever it takes because they would cause a financial crisis that was much worse or that will be much worse than the financial crisis that we had in 2008. All those big banks would fail again. But not only couldn't we bail out the bondholders, they wouldn't be able to bail out the depositors. There'd be no money in the FDIC. So there is absolutely no way that the Fed is actually going to live up to its commitment to do whatever it takes uh, to, to, to put out the inflationary fire. So it's going to burn uh, like a wildfire. You know, I was reading this article that was written by Bloomberg. And I put it up on my Facebook page. And the whole point of the article was how all these companies now had all this newfound pricing power, and they were pointing to all these price increases that were uh, taking place. And from the perspective of the article, they were saying that this was a good thing, that the Federal Reserve should be happy about the, the inflation. That oh, finally, the Fed is getting this inflation, and you know the Fed should be happy about it. Believe me, the Federal Reserve is not happy 
about inflation. I mean, not at all. That's the last thing they want. I mean, publicly, they may talk about how they want inflation, but privately, they're very glad that inflation is not showing up in the numbers because if it did, I mean, they'd be SOL. I mean, their whole monetary policy is predicated on the fact that inflation is still low, and so therefore, we can keep interest rates artificially low because inflation is not high enough. But if inflation actually did move up, well, then they would have to acknowledge that their battle against lowflation is over and that interest rates you know, could go higher. But of course, they can't allow interest rates to go much higher because we can't afford to pay. We have too much debt. The bubble is too big. You know, if, you know the tiniest uh, pins would prick it. So the Federal Reserve, the last thing they want is inflation. I mean, so publicly, they keep talking that there's not enough inflation and they're trying to create it. But privately, you know, they, they never want any evidence of inflation to show up. I mean, because even if they, they succeed in creating inflation, they want to keep that victory hidden from the public so that they can pretend that there's not enough. Because what they're really looking is justification for their easy money policy. And so if inflation picks up, then they no longer have that to justify the continuation of their policy, which is why as inflation picks up, they have to figure out ways of rationalizing it so that they can ignore it. We're going to be symmetrical, right? So now, you know, it's not a 2% ceiling or a target. We just want to have inflation to be symmetrical around 2% so they can allow it to get to three. But now what are they going to say when it gets to four? Well, again, they'll say it's transitory, right? It's temporary. You know, we're going to wait and see. So by the time the Fed really acknowledges that, okay, we have an inflation problem, you know, it's 6%, 7%. And of course, by the time it's that high officially, you can imagine what the actual rate of price increases is unofficially because the numbers so understate the actual rate. Now, we did get some other economic news that came out. Uh, yesterday, we got the trade deficit, right? Trump was bragging about how the trade deficit was coming down. We just had an unexpected jump. It was the highest trade deficit, monthly trade deficit in five months. And it was the biggest monthly jump in over three years. So, so much for improvements. In fact, exports were down and imports were up, right? So both went in the wrong direction. So this is all negative news, but backward looking this morning, they came out and they upwardly revised second quarter GDP growth. Again, that'll make Donald Trump and his kids happy. The number originally reported at 4.1%. They notched it up to 4.2%. Now, I was thinking that they would end up revising this down, and I still think they might do that because they're going to revise it two or three more times before we get the final number. Uh, so all this stuff is preliminary. Right now, it's at 42 But again, this is backward looking. There was a lot of one-off stuff that influence that, the tax cuts, the tariffs, a lot of things that I think pulled forward uh, some GDP from Q3 and Q4 and stuck it in Q2. Uh, so that's the big number. And even though the Atlanta Fed is still looking for 4.6 as of now for Q3, the New York Fed is back below 2%. So you have a pretty big divergence between those two banks and what their current forecasts are uh, for Q3 GDP. One stock that did not participate in today's rally was Tesla. Shares were down another 2.7% today. We're now back at 305-ish per share. That stock rose as high as I think 387 uh, earlier in August following Elon Musk's tweet about bringing the company private 
at $420 a share. And I remember I did a podcast, I believe on the day of that tweet, basically highlighting how completely ridiculous the, the, the idea that Musk could bring Tesla private, even if he wanted to. I don't think it was impossible or I think it was impossible to do that because, you know, normally when a management buys out a company, it's because the stock is super cheap and you have all kinds of cash flow that the market doesn't appreciate the value. So management can go borrow some money to buy back all the stock and then they can service the debt with all the cash flow that the business is generating. But Tesla doesn't generate cash. They burn cash. They're losing a lot of money. It's impossible to raise enough money to both service the new debt right, to leverage, buy out the company, and to continue to service the debt that already exists. Plus, I also pointed out the absurdity of going private, given uh, the realities of the valuation and the fact that Elon Musk wanted all of the current shareholders in the public company to remain shareholders in the private company, which is completely absurd. I mean, you can't have all these mom and pop shareholders in a privately held company. I mean, if you want to have all these little shareholders, the best way to do it is to remain public. But they were already public. So to me, the whole thing was sheer nonsense. It could never be done. It made no sense to even do it if it was possible. But the craziest thing about the, the, the tweet was not that Elon Musk tweeted it out, but that the markets actually believed it, that you actually had people thinking that it was true. Now, of course, you know, the price of the stock never actually got up to 420. So obviously people didn't think it was a slam dunk, but there was a pretty big rally associated with that tweet. And maybe that was really what Elon was intending, right, to scare the shorts you know, to get the shorts to cover. And I mentioned on that podcast that I thought that this was dangerous territory uh, that he was treading on because the SEC was going to look into this. And they probably are. But the catalyst for the drop this week was on Monday. Musk actually admitted that he was giving up his plans to bring the company private. Now, of course, I don't think there was ever a plan to give up. So I don't believe that that tweet was, you know, completely honest. The only thing honest about it was that there are no plans to bring Tesla private. I just don't believe there ever were any plans. Right? I think the whole thing was just an impromptu tweet. And then he tried to you know, weasel his way out of it and then basically said, OK, you know, I'm no longer trying to take it take it private. But, you know, the the SEC, they're going to investigate this. Who knows if there's going to be any charges for stock manipulation or fraud or anything like that? But again, the crazy thing was how many people actually believed it, how much press coverage there was about, you know, where the money would come from and how it would work. And to me, this is just another sign of the crazy things that happen near the end of a bubble, near the end of a mania, right? Not the fact that the company does go private, but that a tweet about it could be taken so seriously that people could actually think that something like this is possible and something like this would only be possible in a complete stock market mania. And this may be a bubble, but it ain't that big. It isn't big enough to actually pull this off, but apparently it is big enough for some investors to actually buy in the idea that it's possible. Meanwhile, now the stock has actually dropped by just over 20% uh, since its tweet peak 
which technically already meets Wall Street's definition of a bear market. But of course, the bear market in Tesla, I believe, has only barely begun. I mean, this is just one of a number of story stocks uh, that have been hyped up in this mania. And when the air comes out of the bubble, uh, there's a lot of air that's going to come in to the leaders of the bubble that have been driving you know, the NASDAQ to its record highs. I want to change gears and talk a little bit about Bitcoin. I haven't mentioned the cryptocurrency in a few podcasts, and it's in the news again. We've seen a rally back above 7,000. In fact, overnight, we're above 7,100. I think as I'm recording right now, it's around 7,050 or thereabouts. And all of the cryptocurrencies have moved up. The total market cap now is about $230 billion. We did get below $200 billion briefly before you know, recovering that, that milestone again. But I think that this is another just sucker rally, bear market rally. I think all the cryptocurrencies, the altcoins, Bitcoin, I think they're all making new lows. Uh, this is not the beginning of the next run up to 20,000. It's not uh, the new bull market. And I think the catalyst for this recent run up in, in Bitcoin was a special that CNBC ran on Monday night at 6 p.m. And I watched the entire special. And first of all, the hour before the special, was entirely about the special. So they spent an hour talking about their Bitcoin documentary and everybody was pretty much bullish, right? So you had all these Bitcoin guys for an hour uh, talking about you know, how great Bitcoin was and promoing this, uh, this Bitcoin documentary. And of course, they had been promoing the documentary all week. So there was a lot of hype leading up to this documentary on whether Bitcoin was a boom or a bust or, you know, whether it was a scam or, you know, the next best thing. And I think that a lot of the people in the crypto community knew that this special was going to air and thought, okay, this is a lot of good publicity, a lot of good press. People might watch it and maybe tempted to buy uh, some Bitcoin or some other currencies. So I think they front ran that. And I think the buying started. And in fact, if you look at some of the crypto stocks, right, stocks that are associated with cryptocurrency plays and blockchain, a day or two before the, the special aired, they really started to rise. Big moves up. One day, two days before the special, kind of a little bit more the day of the special. But to me, clearly, the only news that I could find that was out there was this particular event. And so I think that people were preparing for it, almost like this was a gigantic pump and people were preparing to dump into uh, the, the buying that may result from all of this promotion that CNBC was giving to, to Bitcoin. And of course, I watched the entire special and I thought it really was a complete waste of time as far as doing any real explanation as far as Bitcoin and, and money and the central banking and inflation. And it, it really did not get into any aspects of money or explaining money or historical issues about money and what is money and what's not money, what's worked, what hasn't worked. I mean, it was pretty much worthless from that perspective. What they did do is they spent the majority of time, I'd say maybe 80% of the time, was spent interviewing people who had gotten rich 
off of cryptocurrencies and other people who were expecting to get rich off of cryptocurrencies. And it really was just kind of like a puff piece designed to generate interest in, in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies by creating the idea that, hey, everybody can get rich, that this is just early in this revolution and you should get on board, you know, you snooze, you lose. And, you know, it was very much a pro-Bitcoin type piece, which, again, I think that the people in the crypto community who seem to me are very close with producers at CNBC, particularly on this Fast Money show, which glorifies uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin every chance they have, I think they realize that, hey, this is going to be very favorable to Bitcoin. And, you know, it's likely to generate some buying. And so let's take advantage of that. Let's run up the price so we can sell it. And, of course, they want to get the price going up around the time of the documentary so that further validates that, oh, this is a good time to buy because the price is is moving up. Now, of course, they did have some critics, right? It wasn't all, you know, one-sided. It was only about 80% one-sided and 20% or so was criticism. But I had a lot of problem with the criticism because they really only had two people that were criticizing Bitcoin. And of course, almost all the criticism, and they focused almost all of their, you know, their show on uh, Jordan Belfort. And if you don't know who Jordan Belfort is, he was the, the the wolf of Wall Street, right? The guy, the notorious pump and dumper in the stock market, depicted by Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie, right? The Wolf of Wall Street. And I think they chose Jordan to be the to argue against Bitcoin for a reason. Right? Because there are a lot of people who are a lot more sophisticated, who have much better reputations in the financial community, who could have done an excellent job criticizing, you know, the investment merits of Bitcoin or even talking about it, you know, at, you know and criticizing it for its failures to basically fulfill the necessary qualities of money. Right. There are a lot of ways that they could have done the anti-Bitcoin part of, of this documentary. But the reason that they chose Jordan Belford, I think, should be obvious. I mean, first of all, I mean, most people's image of Jordan Belford is Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Snorting coke off a hooker's ass, right? I mean, this is who people think about when they hear this guy. And yeah, that may all sound really fun and everything, but that is not the image of a financial analyst or a guy who, yeah, we should really trust this guy to be able to analyze the, the merits of Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies and blockchain. That's They did this deliberately. They wanted to have a, a critic of Bitcoin who himself would not be that credible when he delivered the critique. Yes, he understands scams, surely, because he scammed a lot of people. But that doesn't mean that Bitcoin is a scam just because this guy scammed people, right? I mean, that's what they want people to, to think. And he didn't criticize a lot of the important aspects of Bitcoin that are wrong. He just focused in on the nature of the hype that surrounds it and the fact that you have a lot of Bitcoins that are concentrated in the hands of the early uh, whales who got in 
And now they have to generate hype in order to get new buyers to come in and, and buy the Bitcoin so that they can cash out. And all this is, yes, very similar to the way he would corner markets in thinly traded penny stocks and have his stockbrokers pound the phones and generate a bunch of hype and generate a bunch of demand so that the early buyers can, can cash out to a bunch of unsuspecting chumps who got taken in by, by a sales pitch, right? And so he sees a lot of similarities between the way he would scam people and the way he believes people are being scammed into buying uh, cryptocurrencies or other, you know, through these ICOs and everything. And I agree with him. I mean, a lot of what he's saying is true, but I think that a lot of people are simply going to be very dismissive of his points because of the source. I mean, just like, and of course, you know, people shouldn't be dismissive, but it's, a natural thing to do. Like when people were dismissive of the Bernie Madoff comments, when Bernie Madoff got interviewed a long time ago and he was in jail and he said, yes, you know, I, I was small time operator, you know, the U.S. government, they're running the world's biggest Ponzi scheme. What they're doing is, you know, huge compared to what I did. Right. I remember I joked about that. That's part of my stand up routine. If you haven't seen the Peter Schiff stand up where I, I, I got second place in that New York's funniest reporter a few years ago. So you can see the whole stand up. But I mentioned this about Bernie Madoff and how nobody gave him any credibility when he talked about how the U.S. government was running a Ponzi scheme. People said, well, why should we listen to him? He has no credibility. Well, my point was, well, he has credibility about one thing, Ponzi schemes. And, you know, so we ought to take him seriously because he ought to know one, right? Well, the same thing could be said about Jordan Belfort. I mean, he understands pump and dump. He understands, you know, the whole psychology of that. So I think his comments and his critique actually should be taken seriously, but I think a lot of people won't take it seriously, just like they didn't want to take Bernie Madoff seriously because Madoff was a criminal and Belford is a criminal. And so that is not the, the person that you want to be arguing your point unless you're intentionally trying to undercut the bearish case by putting it all on, on Jordan Belford because now it's not really a fair comparison. I mean, they, they wouldn't want to put somebody like me up there that would make a more credible case or not even me. I mean, there are a lot of big shots in the mainstream financial media, right? They could have had Warren Buffett on there, right? You know, they could have had Charlie Munger. They could have had Jamie Dimon. There are a lot of big people that could have argued why they think it's a scam, why they think it's going to go to zero, why people are going to lose their money, but they didn't want to have a source that would be more credible to their audience. They wanted a source that a lot of people would kind of laugh at and kind of think, oh, we don't have to take him seriously. You know, he's an ex-con. What does he know about finance? You know, really, what does he know about cryptocurrencies? What does he know about blockchain? So I think this whole thing, again, was designed as just a puff piece, a way to generate interest in cryptocurrencies, in Bitcoin. And I think they front ran that. I think people were trading into it. And I do expect that the market is now going to roll over again as all the people who were positively influenced by the stories that they heard. There were no stories of people who lost money in, in cryptocurrencies. There were a lot of people who were interviewed who made money. And now there were some other people who were interviewed and I didn't know if they made money or lost money because they didn't broach the subject. I mean, they were very optimistic that they were going to make money, but I don't know exactly where they're standing now. I mean, when they actually got involved in the market, did they get in early on when this, you know, 
Bitcoin kid Bitcoin or kid crypto, this guy that lives in a treehouse, you know, who's a multimillionaire, but, you know, he lives in a treehouse because he doesn't want to actually have to buy a place or pay rent because he doesn't want to give up one of his precious Bitcoins because he's hodling them. You know, he actually corrected uh, the pronunciation, hodl, it's hodl, or actually now I'm not even sure, I might have it backwards, but whatever he was doing, he wasn't selling. And so he, he didn't want to, you know, spend any precious Bitcoins that were going to be worth millions and millions of dollars a piece. So for now, he's living in a treehouse. So, but that guy obviously got in early and he's ahead, but then they interviewed some other people and I have no idea. I had a feeling that they got in later on and they were losing money, but that never came up, right? They didn't do any stories focusing on people who put a bunch of money into Bitcoin at 15,000, 18,000, 20,000, you know, people who might've borrowed money on a credit card or taken out a home loan and who were now way down, right? They didn't, they didn't get into that at all. They only focused on the positive stories. They didn't focus at all on the negative stories. So this was a piece that was specifically designed to promote Bitcoin, to be supported of Bitcoin. Maybe they marketed it as a balanced documentary, but it was really anything but. So I think that you're going to see selling now as, you know, the people who saw the documentary, you know, are getting into the market. And now the people who bought some more cryptocurrencies in the weeks or days ahead of the documentary, now they're able to cash out for a quick profit to the CNBC audience uh, that got, you know, that got suckered in. But as ridiculous as that uh, Bitcoin documentary was, the most ridiculous thing that I want to comment on today has to do with the reaction to a comment made by the Republican nominee for governor in Florida. All right, we just had the primaries on, on Tuesday, and the Donald Trump-endorsed candidate, Ron DeSantis, one for the Republicans, and he beat out some well-financed mainstream opponents because he had Trump's endorsement. And Trump's endorsement goes a long way in a Republican primary. So this is the Donald Trump candidate. I mean, he fully embraced Trump, and he is the Republican nominee. The Democrat nominee also beat out a lot of mainstream, very wealthy people who were self-financed. A couple of billionaires were running and spent, you know, I think between them, maybe $50 million. One of them, Jeff Green, who I've met on several occasions. He's one of the guys who uh, shorted uh, the subprime market. In fact, he found out about the trade while playing tennis with John Paulson. And, you know, rather than giving the money to John, he did the trade himself and, you know, made, I don't know, several hundred million, maybe not quite a billion on that trade. But he, he had a lot of money to start with. And so he made a lot more by shorting subprime. So he spent some of that money uh, on this uh, failed attempt to become the Democratic nominee for governor down in Florida. But this guy, Andrew Gillum, uh, won. He's actually a first-term mayor of Tallahassee, happens to be black, also happens to be a socialist, which is the most significant uh, aspect of this guy. It's not his race, it's his politics. He's not just a Democrat. He is a Bernie Sanders-endorsed Democratic socialist, right? He's a socialist. So you've got this race going on now in Florida, which is going to be a key uh, governor's race. And I, I, look, I think that the Republican is going to pull this off. But if if he loses, I mean, that is a huge, huge indication that I'm right about the blue wave that's coming, especially in 2020, because, you know, Florida is a key state and Trump won Florida. 
And he's president. I think the old saying is that a Republican can't win the White House without winning Florida. Remember, Florida is what gave the uh, the presidency uh, to uh, George W. Bush and denied it to Al Gore. Remember the hanging chads? That was all down in Florida. Uh, so if a Trump-backed candidate loses to a socialist, I mean, that is over the top. Now, I, I don't actually think that that's going to happen, uh, but we'll see. I mean, it's certainly not impossible, but at this point, I don't think it's likely, but, you know, we'll see. I mean, this is going to be an ugly, ugly race. I mean, that's for sure. And if you want to get an idea of how ugly, you could just look at the story that's going around today, which is you, you can pull this. Uh, page from the book of, you know, there's no way you could believe something could actually happen like this. So anyway, uh, Ron is talking and he's saying, and I don't know the exact words, but you know, something like this. So he's talking about why we shouldn't go out on a limb and elect a guy like Andrew Gillum, you know, a socialist to, to run the state because the state is doing well, the economy is doing well, and he doesn't want Andrew Gollum to screw it all up, right? To have a socialist come in and wreck a good thing. But he chose a different word. He said that he didn't want Andrew Gillum to monkey it up, right? To monkey around with the economy, right? Throw a monkey wrench in it and, and screw it up by monkeying around with a good economy, right? He used the word monkey. Well, Andrew Gillum happens to be black. So, of course, he chose the word monkey because he was calling Andrew Gillum a monkey. So, in other words, Ron DeSantis is a racist, right? And the reason that he chose the word monkey is because he deliberately wanted to refer to Andrew Gillum as a monkey. And so it's not that his socialists' policies were going to monkey things up. He himself, being black, was going to monkey stuff up. So what he was really saying is, is we don't want a black person to be the governor of the state because a black person is going to screw it all up. He's not criticizing his blackness. He's criticizing his socialist policies, and he happened to choose a word like monkey, monkey around. I mean, you know, that, that has nothing to do with race. It has to do with monkeys and how monkeys act and where these expressions come from, right? You know, we're going to, he's, you know, monkeying around or monkey it up or throw a monkey wrench in, right? Because monkeys, you know, if you ever look at how monkeys act, they go in and they make a mess. They screw, you know, they're just like, you know, little kids and they throw things around and, you know, you put monkeys loose in, in your apartment, you come back, what do you expect? I mean, they're going to tear the place apart, right? It's got nothing to do with race, but of course, a racist press and the racist opponents, it's the racist on the left that the minute they hear the word monkey, immediately think about black. Why? I mean, what 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 is there that's, that blacks and monkeys have in common that the minute you hear the word monkey, you immediately think black? Because I don't think Ron DeSantis thought about it at all. I mean, there's no way. I mean, if he really was a racist, right, and thought black people were like monkeys, you think he would be cautious? He would make sure right? Not to use that word. He would, he would be extra careful because he wouldn't want to let the cat out of the bag that he was a racist. I mean, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe is, I mean, that's probably racist too, right? Let the cat out of the bag, right? I mean, because they got black cats, right? That's probably why people think that saying monkey is racist because a lot of monkeys are black or brown. So, I mean, there are black cats. I mean, you know, so let the cat out of the bag. I mean, is that racist? I mean, what if, what if there's a black woman and I say she's catty? You know, am I being a racist or am I being a sexist or am I being both? 
I mean, so do we have to eliminate the word monkey? Right. I mean, could I say that somebody is horsing around? Does that make me a racist? Because, you know, they got black horses. Right. Or, you know, what about he's an animal? Can I call somebody an animal if they happen to be black? Right. I mean, I can call a white person an animal. But if I call a black person an animal, does does that make me a racist? Look, you know, monkeys are not all black. I mean, you know, they got they got orange monkeys. They got golden monkeys. Right. They even got white monkeys. You ever seen it? You know, go Google them. I mean, they're cute. There's plenty of white monkeys. I think they're rare, but they have them. I mean, basically, if you're just going to assume that when someone says black monkey, they're talking about blacks, you're actually being racist against monkeys. You're just assuming that all monkeys are black when they're not. There are white monkeys. But, you know, if you actually look at a picture of a monkey, you're looking at a chimpanzee, right? I'm, I'm Googling one now. I'm, I'm pulling up a chimpanzee. Because I guess the whole idea is that when you say monkey, the reason that it's an insult to blacks is because you're saying black people are like monkeys, right? But maybe they look like monkeys. But if you actually look at a monkey, I mean, they don't necessarily look like they're black or white. I mean, they don't look like a human. I mean, yeah, they look similar. We have 99% of our DNA is similar to like a chimp. So yes, I mean, they look like us closer to any other animal. I mean, they have heads like us and they have limbs and hands and fingers. And there's a lot of things about monkeys that are like humans, but they're no more like black humans than they are like white humans. As I already said, right, there monkeys come in all colors. So even if the majority of monkeys are some shade of brown, right, a lot of them are very light in color. Right. So they're not all the same. But if you actually look at their features, I mean, I'm looking at this picture now of these monkeys. And I guess you could say if you look at the nose of a chimp, I'd say, yeah, I'd say the nose of a chimp is more similar to the nose of a black guy. I mean, if you know, not all black guys, of course, but, you know, black guys tend to have wider noses and these monkeys look like they have wider noses. But then if you look at the lips, the lips look like they're white because they have very thin lips. Right. They have white people's lips. Black people have full lips, plumper lips. So, I mean, white people's lips look a lot more like monkey lips than a black person. Now, I guess if you look at the shape of their skull, the shape of their head is a little bit more elongated, which is, I think, a little bit more similar to a black skull than than a white skull. But look at their hair. The hair is very straight. I mean, that's white, right? White people have straighter hair. Black people have really curly hair. So monkey's hair looks a lot more like a white person than a black person. So, I mean, I can't even argue looking at a monkey objectively to say that it's more like a white person than a black person or a black person, a white person. It's like a monkey. A chimp is like a monkey or an orangutan or a gorilla or these little monkeys. They're monkeys. <laughs> it's a racist who every time he hears the word monkey automatically thinks of a black person. That's the racist, not Don DeSantis. He just thinks of a monkey as a monkey. And he thinks of people as people. But you got this group out there. Now, of course, I think a lot of the people on the left know damn well that Ron DeSantis did not mean anything racist by his comment, right? He was just talking. But they want to make him out like he's a racist. But again, all this does is make the actual racist, it lets the real racist off the hook. Again, it's like this, you know, everybody's a sexual harasser, right? You, you, you pat a girl on the butt and that's sexual harassment. You're going to jail. That's abuse. That's all right. It diminishes real harassment and real abuse. When you call a guy racist because he says monkey around 
and the person who's going to monkey around just happens to be black, and now you want to say this guy's a racist, then you're letting the actual racist off the hook. But you're bringing racists into this. Like, you're playing the race card. Like, aha, that's the Trump card, right? No pun intended, right? Once you play that card, all bets are off, right? Everybody's afraid because now if you defend this guy, if you defend Ron DeSantis, well, you're a racist too, right? That's the problem. They know that. The left knows that. They look for every opportunity to play this race card. In fact, I was watching on Fox News, Sandra Smith, who I also know and who I like. I've met her many times. Um, So Sandra Smith is reporting. I don't know if she's just saying this or she's reading what's on a teleprompter, but she's reporting on the story. And then she reads the Ron DeSantis explanation, which of course is a perfect explanation of why he meant nothing racist about it at all, that it's absurd to actually read that into it. But then after she finished, she went out of her way to say that Fox News does not condone the language he used. Why? I mean, what language? He used the word monkey. That is not a bad word. Monkey is not a racist word. Monkeying around, monkeying it up, is a well-known expression. The expression is derived from monkeys, not black people. (laughs) And it's a totally appropriate expression to use. And it's the exact same word that DeSantis would have used if Andrew Gillum were white. And so that is what makes somebody not a racist. When you treat white people and black people the same, if we have to carefully choose our words because we don't want to use a word when we're talking about a black person that somehow can be, you know, twisted to be racist, that is racist. When you have to treat people differently because of their race, right? That's what makes you a racist. You know, I forget the the name of the the, the sports announcer who, who got into trouble again, and he shouldn't have been in trouble at all because he happened to describe a, a tennis match. And it was one of the Williams sisters uh, that were playing. I forget which one. And, and so the, the announcer was talking about her game and said that she was using a guerrilla tactic, right? And all of a sudden, all the reporters like, oh, this is a racist comment. He just called her a guerrilla. Well, I mean, first of all, he didn't call one of the Williams sisters a guerrilla. He just said that she was using guerrilla tactics, not that she herself was a guerrilla, but also guerrilla tactics the word guerrilla is derived from guerrilla warfare, not guerrillas in the jungle. It's a different word. It's spelled differently. Yes, it sounds like the guerrilla in the jungle, but it's not. So apparently you're a racist if you even use a word that sounds like a word that could be construed as being racist, which of course is not racist because he would have used that exact same word to describe her tactics if she was white. But because she's not white, because she's black, he doesn't have to you know, change his vocabulary. So he, he doesn't offend her. I mean, remember that guy, there was a sports announcer who was talking about a, a Chinese basketball player and he said they found a chink in the armor and he got all in trouble because he, he called this black guy a chink. No, he didn't. He, he didn't call him a chink. There was a chink in the armor. Again, you know, this, everybody is looking for a way to pretend that, that somebody is racist so they can play that racist card and and win because now nobody can defend it, right? You know, nobody has a, has a defense because if you try to say anything, that just proves that you're a racist. Look, I mean, cracker, right, is, is a derogatory term for white people, right? And I don't know, if I was having dinner with a black guy and there was some 
Ritz crackers on the table and the guy said, hey, pass me a cracker. I'm not going to scream racist because you used the word cracker. It's in a different connotation. The cracker, it's a Ritz cracker. It's a cracker. What about a firecracker? Is it racist against white people if you if you mention firecracker? I remember some other guy. Again, I forget the names of these people who get in trouble. But there was a guy, just Google it, you can look it up, who got in trouble for using the word niggardly. Right? Niggardly, if you don't know it, means stingy. Right? Uh, and so he used it in a sentence. And of course, he was being accused of being a racist because he used a word that, can, that contained the N-word as part of the word. But again, it, it's niggardly. That is the word. Take it up with Webster. Take it up with the English language. But now, oh no, we have to completely change around our vocabulary because a word may sound like a word that somebody might mean, oh, we're a racist for using this word. Right? What's racist is the race police. Right? It's all the, the, the left who are just looking for every opportunity they can to falsely label people a racist so that they can turn it into a political uh, event. And now, all of a sudden, this guy's a racist. And by, you know, by osmosis or you know, by the associative property, Donald Trump is a racist too. Of course, we all know that Donald Trump is a racist. And this just proves it because he is backing a racist candidate for governor who thinks black people are monkeys and refers to black people as monkeys. And that's it. And it's a code word, too, because he's sending out a code to all the white voters reminding them that Gillum is black in case they forgot. Right. He is letting them know that I'm running against a black guy, but I'm just saying a monkey. So in case you didn't know he was black, you'll know because everybody knows that monkeys are black. Right. And so I'm saying monkey because I want to scare all the racists into, you know, not voting for my opponent because, you know, we don't want a black guy in in office because he's going to screw up the whole economy. And so we got to keep this black guy out. But I can't just say that. So I'm going to slip in this code word monkey and then all the racist voters will get the code. Right. You know, they take out their decipher book. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's talking in code. He means black person. He's a racist and I'm a racist, too. And so I'm not going to vote for that monkey. I'm going to vote for the white guy, right? That is what the left wants everybody to believe, right? So now you have to vote against DeSantis to prove you're not a racist. You got to vote against him uh, because if you if you vote for him, well, then you're a racist too, right? That, that is what the left wants people to believe because they can't really win on the real issues. Socialism, you can't win arguing socialism on the on the merits. You have to appeal to the emotions. And part of the emotion, of course, is is greed and envy and getting free stuff. But the other part is just that the person who's against me is a bad person, right? That that the capitalists are bad. They're greedy. They don't want people to have stuff. They're against all this stuff. But another way to paint a free market guy or a capitalist as a bad guy is to also brand him as a racist. And that's already happened, right? He's now a racist and there's no way around this. So again, this is going to be a very dirty but very interesting campaign for governor. And I think if the Democrats pull this off, this is a huge, huge uh, sign that we are in a lot of trouble. Now, of course, if the Republicans win, that doesn't mean that we're out of the woods or that we're not in trouble. We're in trouble either way. But if they lose, it just shows you just how much trouble we're actually in. 